Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And and let's let's get get our fix. Hey addicts, welcome back to part two of the Happy Face Killer. Today we are sipping on some vanilla chai tea lattes and I cannot wait for you guys to hear this part two. This week we are going to be shouting out Wendy G, Nexus underscore Chris, and Hey Iris. They have liked, commented, rated, reviewed, and shared our content across all social media outlets. We couldn't do this without your continued support and willingness to spread the word about our podcast. So thank you guys so much. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please go like, follow, rate, review, and share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG or at crimeaddictspodcast.com. You'll find there a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There is also a beautiful donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper, click our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. The process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. We are getting into part two of Keith Hunter Jesperson, also known as the Happy Face Killer. Last week, we went into detail about each of his victims and the crimes that were committed against them. We also gave some insight into Jesperson's background and also got into a little bit about the investigation. Because this is part two, we definitely recommend listening to part one before you hear this. So if you haven't heard part one, jump back to episode 15 and then come back to listen to episode 16. In the meantime, it was agreed that Laverne and Jesperson would undergo polygraph examinations, which would be administered by the FBI. The results of the polygraph test indicated that Laverne was being truthful in her denials that she had killed Tanya, and that Jesperson was being truthful in his claims of being the killer. The results of the tests also showed that Jesperson and Laverne did not know each other. Based on the new information, Multnomah County District Attorney Michael Shrunk filed a motion in Marion County, where the Oregon State Penitentiary is located, asking for immediate release of Laverne and John. D.A. Shrunk told presiding Marion County Circuit Judge Paul Lipscomb that Laverne and John had served more than four years in prison for a crime that they didn't commit. He also outlined the evidence that Jesperson had provided. However, the judge refused to immediately release the couple. Instead, the judge said that he would consider an evidentiary hearing after Jesperson entered his plea in which Jesperson could testify on behalf of Laverne and John. Quote, it's extraordinary, D.A. Shrunk said afterwards. You don't see prosecutors doing this all the time. It's the appropriate thing to do under the appropriate circumstances. He emphasized that there were no improprieties on the part of the judge, jury, or lawyers when Laverne and John were convicted. The evidence they had at the time was ample evidence to convict, end quote. Quote, there are a lot of dynamics in this case, and you would have to have been there to understand it, Deputy District Attorney James McIntyre said. McIntyre, who prosecuted the case, said that he did not owe anyone an apology for having prosecuted a case that sent two innocent people to prison. Quote, what I will say is that based upon the evidence we discovered after interviewing Jesperson, we couldn't have obtained these convictions, end quote. Laverne's family, meanwhile, remained hopeful that the judge would do the right thing and release Laverne and John from prison. Quote, we're happy, but not happy enough, one of Laverne's relatives said after the judge's decision. Quote, we need the release order signed before we get real happy. The case should have never gone to trial. If the jury had heard the whole truth, they would have never been convicted. 
She, meaning Laverne, also read mystery books and murder books. She read in the paper that the girl had been murdered and that the police didn't have a suspect, so she gave them a suspect, end quote. In the meantime, while Jesperson waited to enter his plea for murdering Tanya as the state of Wyoming continued building its case against him for the murder of Angela, Jesperson continued his many contacts with the news media, claiming responsibility for the murders of a number of other women. After Tanya, Jesperson said, quote, There was Claudia, a girl wanting to ride to Phoenix, Arizona with me. She tried to extort my wallet from me and died trying. Then there was Cynthia Lynn Rose, a prostitute working the southbound rest area on Highway 99 near Turlock, California. Then Lorianne Pentland, a prostitute working the Burns Brothers truck stops in Wilsonville, Oregon. Then a Jane Doe prostitute working the Petro's stop in Corning, California. Then a woman I gave a ride to in Florida going to Lake Tahoe, Nevada. She called herself Susanna. End quote. Jesperson also claimed that he was responsible for the murders of the following woman. Bobby in Oregon, October 27, 1992. Lynn in Nevada, January 1993. Susan in Oklahoma, January of 1993. Linda in Washington, March of 1993. Sunny in Arizona, April of 1993. Jane Doe in Idaho, April 1993, Jane Doe in California, May of 1993, another Jane Doe in California in July of 1993, Jane Doe in Arizona, September of 1993, Carrie in Idaho, November of 1993, Karen in Georgia, February of 1994, Carol in Nevada, February of 1994, Jane Doe in Nebraska, October 1994, Jane Doe in Iowa, February of 1995, and Jane Doe in Indiana, February of 1995. There were others that he could not name or provide a location for. All in all, he said he was responsible for at least 160 slayings across the United States. Jesperson told the media that he was admitting to all of these murders because he was bothered by his guilty conscience. However, Jesperson would later recant most of those confessions spit it out did you do it or did you not do it i mean <laughs> don't God. take it back 160 i heard all the way up to 185 so okay. and only now you're feeling guilty and i mean he only Come got on. this guy aggravates me at one point according to an account by the happy face killer himself jesperson was visited by investigators from what was then left of the Green River Killer Task Force, wanting to know if he was responsible for any of the still unsolved killings in their jurisdiction. Since many of Jesperson's victims were known prostitutes and strangulation was his preferred method of murder, Jesperson naturally looked like a feasible candidate in at least some of the Green River killings. The fact that he was trucking in and out of Seattle and the surrounding areas on an almost daily basis in the early to mid-1980s hauling flatbeds of scrap steel into the steel mills of Seattle and Tacoma made him look even more viable as a suspect. Jesperson, in his own words, claimed that he told the following story to an unnamed investigator from the Green River Task Force. Okay, story time. Are you ready, Tay? Let's do it. Quote, One day they had me in a room and told me to tell them about Seattle. They have reason to believe that I am one of the killers that is responsible for some of the Green River murders. They still believe this, but are waiting for more information to flow through my lips on the subject. Thinking for only five minutes, I thought up this story to tell them to throw them off, but it backfired instead. The story involved two sisters, and the police had never mentioned to the press that two sisters had become victims in the Green River Killer. It was about 8 p.m. as I drove north up the Seattle-Tacoma Strip instead of taking Interstate 5. This roadway is full of hitchhikers and hookers at this time of night. I was eyeing two cute hookers as they talked at a bus stop. Both were good lookers, but I wanted one by herself. About a quarter mile up the road, I spotted a bitch walking fast up the sidewalk. Her hips were swinging from side to side, and she had nice long legs that climbed up to her butt. Her body was slender and firm. She seemed to be in a hurry. 
As I was approaching her at 35 miles per hour, I thought for just a moment about her, but knew I first had to get the rest of my steel on. Fun will come later. She reached the bus stop before I got there, and without looking out for traffic, she stepped right out in front of me. With the car passing me on the left, I could only brake to hope from hitting her. I heard the impact as her body struck my bumper and felt her tumble under my tires. I had managed to stop the truck quickly, and with emergency flashers going, I stepped out of the truck a little shaken. I had stopped the truck, and her body was still under my trailer. She was dead, and I looked around for witnesses. But there were none, and the traffic was little to none. No one had witnessed the accident. I felt I could get away with it. If only I could get her body away from there. So I dragged her body out from under the trailer and placed her in the cab of the 1964 Kenworth and got in and drove up north the strip for a half mile. On the right was an open field with tall trees and enough brush to hide behind to dig her a shallow grave, end quote. As he continued his tale, Jesperson told of how he had grabbed his shovel after throwing the dead woman over his shoulder. He carried her back into the field, tossed her body on the ground, and removed all of her jewelry, placing it inside his pocket, he claimed. As he dug her grave, he explained that he heard something or someone coming toward him. Not wishing to be seen, he knelt down and watched. The man, like Jesperson, was carrying a body, but his was inside a black plastic bag. He placed it on the ground and proceeded to dig a grave nearby as Jesperson watched. Jesperson said he decided to approach the man and startled him as he approached him. Quote, I was about done when I saw you walking towards me, said he told the man. Quote, I couldn't help but be amazed that two of us had to get rid of two bodies at the same time. Now that I know what you came out here for, I will get back to what I was doing. Oh and- my gosh. I am tripping out right now. <laughs> I am tripping out. This story is ridiculous. After they had both buried the bodies in the field, the two of them decided to stop at a restaurant and have coffee together. Best buds. Bestie. Did we just become best friends? (laughs) Yep. I think so. (laughs) Quote, I couldn't help but notice that yours and mine looked a lot alike, Jesperson said he told the man. They had the same features. Only difference was the necklace I took off mine. I pulled the jewelry from my pocket and placed it on the table. He picked up the jewelry and studied it, and a tear came to his eyes. Jesperson said he asked the man what was wrong. Quote, it seems we have a lot more in common than just burying two girls at the same time, Jesperson said the man told him. Quote, we both have killed identical twins. Yours is the sister <laughs> to mine. <laughs> what the hell is this? This is the most, like, he should get an award. Oh my god. Disney, gosh. sign him up. You know what? He needs to like Oh my gosh. I am tripping out. We this man to... has legit his brain thinks. Right. Just not in the right sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It functions just not appropriately. Jeez. <laughs> we need true crime TV and oxygen channel to pick oh this guy up god. for a story. <laughs> Literally, because you know what? This story had some twists and turns. I'm over here staring at you with my eyes open and my like, mouth dropped to the floor. I'm like, <gasps> yeah, what? I mean, it was obviously not true, but these are the things As like a tear jerked from his face. I thought for a second, you're my long lost brother. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, OK, so just in thinking about what he told the media, you can see that this is one story. I mean, think about he was loving the attention. Mm -hmm. Think of all the other stories, tales, even truths. Like, how do you know what's mixed in there? Oh, this guy's crazy. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. I am, like, (laughs) disgustingly impressed right now. (laughs) Yeah, he should get an award for that one. Prison awards. (laughs) (laughs) He He should get paid in commissary. (laughs) Some extra peanuts. Yes. Take that and shove it where the sun don't shine. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, so the foregoing story was obviously a fabrication. (laughs) Obviously, that was just like made up by Jesperson's imagination. 
But it serves as a good example of his ability to lie easily and quickly without giving much advice through the process. That was so fast. Five minutes. And he came up with that story. Like, what? I'm telling you, like, his, his fantasies are working. His fantasies were off the wall, man. Oh, my gosh. Okay. We got to stop because I got to talk about this a little, like, later. But so, okay. So according to the profiler and serial killer expert Dr. Maurice Goodwin, who often works closely with law enforcement investigators to assist the police with his expertise, there were no sisters as victims in the Green River case. In fact, Jesperson later proudly proclaimed that he had made it all up. (laughs) Interestingly, in his I Am a Liar essay that was published widely on the internet, he also denied most, if not all, of his prior admissions of guilt. Of course, right? Right. The Green River Task Force seemed to lose interest in him after his telling of the tale of two sisters, but it remains interesting that he would choose to identify so closely with a case involving so many victims whose deaths, at least in some cases, closely parallel those of his own known victims. So when taking into consideration the outdoor locations of the Green River crime scenes, the nude bodies, strangulation as the cause of death, prostitutes and transient types of victims, and so forth. And when making a comparison to Jesperson's victims in crime scenes, one can only wonder if Jesperson had in reality committed any of the murders attributed to the Green River Killer. So far, however, he has not been charged, nor has he been listed as an official suspect in connection with any of those murders what really drives me nuts about that is that like he spun so many wheels like they had to go and put in man hours and time and effort and energy and resources into determining whether there were two sisters that were ever killed like they shouldn't have ever had to spin their wheels on that the fact that he has wasted so many resources and and people's time and stuff like it just it's honestly disrespectful. It is, but that's part of his whole game. He's a piece of shit. Obviously. I'm sorry. Continue. Definitely. <laughs> All right. So in October of 1995, just before his trial was slated to begin, Jesperson pleaded guilty to the murder of Julie before Clark County, Washington Superior Court Judge Robert L. Harris. Judge Harris, who was the same judge that presided over the Wesley Allen Dodd case, would sentence Jesperson to life in prison in December following proceedings in Oregon. Meanwhile, Jesperson waived extradition from Clark County and was transferred to Oregon. On Thursday, November 2, 1995, after waiving all of his rights, he entered a no-contest plea before Multnomah County presiding judge Donald H. Launder for the murder of Tanya. Judge Launder immediately sentenced Jesperson to life in prison setting a minimum 30-year prison term before being eligible for parole. Judge Launder's sentence, in effect, gave Jesperson what he wanted, namely prison time in Oregon. Proceedings elsewhere would require extradition, meaning considerable expenses and a lot of red tape. The Oregon sentence made potential death penalties in other states less likely, and Jesperson knew it. The no-contest plea and subsequent sentence also set the final wheels for Laverne and John's release from prison into motion. However, there was another Oregon case involving Jesperson that had to be dealt with in the meantime, the murder of Lori. According to the Marion County District Attorney's Office, investigators linked Jesperson to Lori's murder through DNA and other forensic evidence after learning that Jesperson was the happy face killer. Jesperson said that she was an acquaintance that he had contacted via Citizens Band Radio while in the Salem area. In one of the letters, he said that he had sex with her several times. Quote, I felt so much power. I then told her she was going to die and slowly strangled her. End quote. This is what he stated um, when he was writing in as a happy face killer. Jesperson was again sentenced to life in prison in Oregon with a 30-year minimum term before parole eligibility. Following his sentencing in Washington, he was transferred to the Oregon State Penitentiary to begin serving consecutive sentences. If he remains alive to complete his sentence in Oregon, he will be transferred to the Washington State Penitentiary to begin serving his life sentence there. On November 27, 1995, after serving more than five years in prison for a crime they didn't commit, Laverne and John were released from prison. Jesperson cried when he learned of their release. 
It wasn't known, however, whether his tears were tears of happiness for the couple or tears of regret for having confessed to a murder that he knew he could have gotten away with. John's life sentence was revoked. Laverne, on the other hand, did not have her conviction overturned, although she was released from prison. Quote, Laverne has selfishly engaged in an obsessive, unprecedented obstruction of justice, which deflected the investigation at an early stage, causing it to focus on her boyfriend, John, while the real killer remained free to kill again and again, the judge insisted. So just to wrap this up a little bit with where Laverne and John are at now, so we can move on to the remainder of Jesperson's case. Um, Laverne died in Wilsonville, Oregon on March 4th of 2003. She was 70 years old. And John died on December 1st of 2013 in Clackamas, Oregon, and he was 61 years old. After more than two years of considerable legal wrangling, the state of Wyoming finally succeeded in extraditing Jesperson for a trial for the murder of Angela. For the next few months, as prosecutors prepared to go to trial, Jesperson taunted the authorities and threatened to force a costly trial by changing his story regarding the jurisdiction in which he had killed Angela. <laughs> at one point, he said that he had killed her in Wyoming, and at another point, he claimed that he had killed her in Nebraska. After going back and forth for some time surrounding Jesperson's deliberate, misleading statements in his attempt to confuse authorities on who had jurisdiction to prosecute him, a deal was working out. Jesperson agreed to plead guilty to murdering Angela in Wyoming if Laramie County prosecutors would agree to not seek the death penalty against him. As a result, on June 3rd of 1998, District Judge Nicholas Kalokathis sentenced Jesperson to life in prison and ordered that the sentence run consecutive to the two life sentences in Oregon and the life sentence in Washington, leaving little doubt that he would die in prison. Afterward, he was promptly returned to the Oregon State Penitentiary. In June 2006, prosecutors charged Jesperson with first-degree murder for killing Patricia. At the time, her body had still been unidentified. Because remember, they just identified her recent in April of 2022. Yeah. They struck a deal with him to not seek the death penalty if he shared all that he knew about the woman in exchange for a life sentence. Jesperson told authorities that the woman's name might have been Carla, and she was probably 39 years old when he killed her on a May night in 1993. During interviews with the police detectives, Jesperson provided chilling details about his encounter with the woman, which began at a trucker's rest stop off Interstate 5 in Corning, about 20 miles south of Red Bluff, and ended just inside Santa Clara County lines. Jesperson said he targeted the woman the moment he walked through the restaurant door. He described her as looking road hard and said she stared at plates of food as though she were starving to death. He told the waitress he'd like to buy her lunch. He then offered her a ride. After 45 minutes of driving, the two had sex. Then the woman somehow angered Jesperson, who wrapped his massive hands around her neck and strangled her. In July of 2007, Jesperson pleaded guilty and was convicted of felony first-degree homicide for killing the unidentified female, Blue Pacheco, who we now know as Patricia. In September of 2009, Jesperson was indicted in Riverside County, California, for the murder of Jane Doe, or victim number two, whom he called Claudia. In December of 2009, he was extradited to California for sentencing and was convicted of his fourth life sentence in January of 2010. The two victims he has not been charged or convicted of murder as we record this podcast is Cynthia out of California and the Florida Jane Doe he called Suzanne. As with the legal system having no statute of limitations on murder, these charges may still be filed and with science and technology improving every day, these Jane Doe's might be identified. I hope they are. I have a really good feeling that they will be. I know. Because one was just identified, I just have a really yes. good feeling. <laughs> I do too. This is like chilling. Jesperson, if you're listening to this, they're coming for you. <laughs> they're coming. <laughs> okay, so we've introduced her before, but we're going to get a little bit more into it. This is Melissa Moore, Jesperson's daughter. So in November of 2008, she appeared on Dr. Phil to talk about her father. 
She was also featured on The Oprah Winfrey Show, the Lifetime Movies Network series Monster in My Family, and a 2020 special on ABC. She was also a correspondent for Crime Watch Daily. In 2008, Melissa published a book titled Shattered Silence, the untold story of a serial killer's daughter. In her book, Melissa recounts living with Jesperson until her parents' 1990 divorce and noticing how her father was different when she was in elementary school. In November 2014, she wrote an article about her father for the BBC, which Tay's about to read you a, a couple little snippets out of that. But in March of 2018, she was featured in an episode titled Put on a Happy Face of the Investigation Discovery True Crime Series Evil Lives Here. In September 2018, podcast networks How Stuff Works began releasing a show called Happy Face, featuring interviews with Melissa about her childhood and her father. The series had 12 episodes. From July to August 2021, a true crime podcast consisting of seven episodes called Life After Happy Face was released. This was hosted by Melissa and forensic criminologist Laura Petler. So this is... Um, the article that Melissa had wrote, and we do recommend reading the full 2014 article, but here are a couple excerpts from it. One, let me tell you about the last time I saw my dad before he was sent to prison. I was 15 years old when he showed up randomly at home in Spokane, Washington state. He and my mother were divorced and we just saw him occasionally when he fitted us in with his job as a long-distance truck driver. On this particular day in autumn of 1994, he asked me and my younger brother and sister if we wanted to go out for breakfast with him. We all hopped into his big truck, which had a sleeper cab attached to it. My sister and I sat in the sleeper cab on top of the mattress, and my brother sat in the passenger seat. After we set off, my brother opened the glove compartment and found a pack of cigarettes. He was really shocked because smoking was a big no-no for my dad. That had always been something he wanted to instill in us. And he said, quote, oh, those are for my friends, for women that I pick up, end quote. My brother pulled a face like he didn't really believe him, as if to say, quote, dad, are you hiding something from us? Maybe you're a closet smoker, end quote. As we were turning the corner by my high school, a big roll of duct tape rolled out of the sleeping compartment, which struck me as pretty strange too. I thought, quote, why does my dad have duct tape by his pillow? But I kind of brushed it off thinking, well, everything's probably in weird places because there's not a lot of space in here. My brother and sister had plans that morning, so we dropped them off and it was just my dad and I. We had went to a downtown diner I loved my dad, but I didn't really enjoy being around him. He made me anxious. He never molested or beat any of us. It was just a feeling that something was building, something seemingly beneath the surface. I had once tried to articulate it to a school counselor, but it didn't come out right. I mean, a lot of kids think their dad is weird. One of the things about my dad, which made me very uncomfortable as a young woman was that he was very explicit about his sexual relationships. For example, he sometimes went into graphic detail about what it had been like sleeping with my mother. He would leer at women in public, make lewd remarks about them and harass them. That morning at Denny's diner was no different. I remember him flirting horribly with a waitress while we sat in a window booth. It was during this meal that my dad said, quote, not everything is what it appears to be, Missy, end quote. And I said, what do you mean, Dad? I watched him wrestling with something internally. Then he said, quote, you know, I have something to tell you, and it's really important, end quote. There was a long silence before I asked him what it was. Quote, I can't tell you, sweetie. If I tell you, you will tell the police. I'm not what you think I am, Melissa, end quote. I felt my stomach drop like I was on a roller coaster and had just hit the lowest part of the loop. I had to run to the bathroom. When I returned to the booth, I felt calm again and found to my relief that my dad was willing to just drop the conversation. But I go back to that incident so often and I think if he had told me, what would have happened next? 
If he had told me about his seven murders, it was very soon to be eight. Would I have gone to the police? Having revealed his secrets, would he given me that chance? Could my father have killed me? That has been a huge question mark in my life. Two. It was like there was another Keith Jesperson. I had caught a glimpse of this other man, but I also remembered when my dad came home from long-haul truck drives, he would be so doting and kind. He seemed like such a good dad at times. Then again, he had said some very strange things over the years. Quote, You know I drove past the Oregon State Penitentiary and I honked my horn. He told me on the phone one time. I said, Someday, I'm going to be there, but not yet. When I was 13, we were driving along the Columbia River, a beautiful red river that separates Washington State and Oregon. We were just getting close to the Multnomah Falls area where my dad announced, quote, I know how to kill someone and get away with it, end quote. Then he just started to tell me how he would cut off the victim's buttons so that there wouldn't be any fingerprints left. And... He would wear cycling shoes that didn't leave a distinctive print in the mud. Three. My father will never get the death penalty for his crimes, but he should. I don't say that for myself, but for his victims. Justice will never be served to them. I'm not going to go into detail of the horrific torture he inflicted on those poor women who were mothers and daughters and sisters. Not all of his victims had been identified. There are some parents who still don't know where their daughters or sisters disappeared to. I've spoken with family members of his first victim, Tanya Bennett. They had a lot of detail about her life and who she was as a person, which I really wanted to know. I've also spoken to his only survivor, who was brutally raped in front of her infant and tried to strangle. She reached out to me and rearranged to speak on the phone. I was very nervous before the call and I won't deny it, it was hard to hear graphic details about her assault, but I believe it was a powerful gift that she gave me. If I wanted to delude myself about what he had done, I couldn't anymore. I couldn't live in La La Land. I haven't seen him for almost a decade. After my book came out in 2008, I got a letter from him in which he said, quote, I don't want the world to judge me as a dad. I was a great dad. My only mistake was my eight errors in judgment. End quote. But he's talking about murders. He's calling them errors in judgment. That's the way he sees things. How can anyone, even someone as close as a daughter, continue to have a relationship with a person who so completely lacks honesty and compassion? For years, I kidded myself. I knew he had done terrible things, but I still believed that he loved me and my siblings, that he was capable of love and empathy. Then one day, while I was working on my book, I had a conversation with my grandfather. He told me, quote, you know, I went to visit your dad in prison, and he said something that surprised me. He said that he had thoughts of killing you children, end quote. Maybe people will understand this, but hearing that gave me freedom. It allowed me to see that in truth, there had been no doubt, life, there had only been ever been one Keith Jesperson and he had been able to manipulate everyone around him and present different facades to the world. And finally, I knew the answer to the question that had been bothering me every time I thought about our last breakfast together in that diner. Would he have killed me if I had told the police about the crimes? Yes, he would. Understanding that allowed me to say goodbye to him. It's so sad to think about the fact that she had to say goodbye to her father, almost as similar how the victim's family had to say goodbye to their loved ones as well, that he took their lives from. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that something that kind of hit me, but it was crazy, is that it kind of, she says that it freed her, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that she knew in the back of her head that she needed to do it, mm -hmm. but she was waiting for some type of, like, solid evidence in order for her to be able to something yeah that 
gave her that freedom. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know she went on to like the Dr. Phil show. And if you watch that episode, uh, he's telling her like, you cannot take your children to see him. You have to, you know, she, he's basically encouraging her to Dr. say Phil goodbye. Has his own little opinions. And things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I mean, in this case, she did take his advice and this may not work for everybody, but it worked really well for her. You know, mm-hmm. she was able to feel better about the situation and she yeah. doesn't feel so heavy about like, you know, like a, a sense of guilt almost or something because she's able to separate him from her life that she has built with yeah. her family and her and children. I think also because of the way that he acts. Mm-hmm. Like if it was somebody who was genuinely showing remorse and like, you right. know, I made a mistake. Right. I'm so sorry. Right. This dumb piece of poop <laughs> has no remorse. He's like a mass yeah. freaking manipulator. And pathological liar and dirtbag. And yeah, I mean, All I could list a whole bunch of names. We could <laughs> assign to him if you wanted to. But this would be a whole nother episode. <laughs> I mean, I just think we have kind of like briefly discussed the families of the serial killer in the past like about what happened to it them afterwards like you know would you take your children to visit them in prison and stuff like that but I just think it's really admirable about how much she has advocated for not only the victims families but also other families of serial killers yeah so she's in a very unique position where she mm. can do that mm-hmm. you know she has a very absolutely good stance right now and right. i think that she's using her voice really well and i think she's using that unique standpoint for and like position of almost power for good mm-hmm. you know what yeah. i mean like she could have done anything with that yeah and i think she's doing good i mean would you try to do the same thing do you think that you would would like to advocate for the victims or and like the other families yeah. of serial killers or do you think you would be what we normally see of those that like try to hide away from societies to not get the attention because mm-hmm. I just know a lot of their attention that they get like I can see why people do that 100% because the attention that they're getting is solely negative, negative. but I mean she came hard. off right off the bat saying where she stands like mm-hmm. and I think that's why it's it's I don't think it's easier for her but I do think that she has that strength oh and yeah if you like could find a strength to do it where yeah. her mother left and just took her oh, kids yeah. right off the bat like, oh yeah she definitely had that through her mom mm-hmm. and she is doing an amazing work of art right now I for agree. so many people even if they weren't directly related to her dad, but like you said, just victims in general who are experiencing the same thing, Mm -hmm. they can kind of find some kind of comfort in what Mm -hmm. she's saying. Mm -hmm. Victim families just in general. I mean, obviously for her, it's specific to, you know, the eight families that, Mm -hmm. and some of them are unidentified. So, but also, like we said, the families of people who have serial killers you know in their families that are locked up somewhere and they're gonna have to answer to that I mean if if (laughs) I only hope that I had the strength that this girl has and that I could stand Mm -hmm. for what she's standing for if Mm -hmm. if I could and I found that strength and I found my inner peace and that I was you know it was like a calling that I had like she has to share it with others I Mm -hmm. really hope that I would do that I mean yeah you know what I mean use like you said use that position of power for good You know what? That was actually a really good question and discussion that we just had. So I'm going to go ahead and throw that in our discussion question list because I'm interested in what our listeners have to say. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. So I'll add that to our discussion question list and we'll review it when we get there. Okay. We're not actually to the discussion question yet. (laughs) We're almost there, but... (laughs) I do have some like uh, side notes and some information just in addition to this case. So nowadays, right, it's not a secret at all that those who have shown the propensity towards animal violence and abuse during their younger years sometimes move to a more violent criminal history later in life, right? And like, obviously, if it's initially started towards animals, then eventually you kind of take that leap and go Mm -hmm. towards human beings, right? Mm -hmm. So um, with that being like well-known now, it wasn't necessarily back then. So he was actually quoted in saying, It's in the first crime journals of all major law enforcement agencies. Abusive behavior towards animals is one of the symptoms of the road to being a murderer. 
He wrote that it was because his father appeared proud of how he dealt with the stray cats and dogs in their trailer park that it, quote, spawned in me the urge to kill again. I began to think of what it would be like to kill a human being. The thought stayed with me for years until one night it happened. I killed a woman by beating her almost to death and finished her off by strangulation, he said. This is obviously him explaining how he killed Tanya, right? And we know that now. Um, quote, no longer did I search for animals to mistreat. Now I looked for people to kill. And I did. I killed over and over until I was caught. Now I'm paying for it with the rest of my life behind bars. We should stop the cruelty to anything before it develops into a bigger problem like me. I just want to go on record of saying that you don't get to turn around and advocate for your own problems. I'm like, ew. I'm like disgusted. You don't say that. Yeah, I don't like that he turned tried to turn that into like, like now he's a you're victim. You're not a good person. You're not a victim. No. No, no, no. <laughs> Heck no. So, I mean, and obviously in reading these, we can clearly see that this was an attempt to like convince the public to buy into the ideas that a compassionate side of him existed where obviously it did not. Nope. <laughs> it's invisible. But um, during his many letter writing campaigns to reporters and writers with websites, basically anybody that was willing to publish him in any capacity, he ran the gamut of trying to present different sides to his personality. In one letter, he might write about his compassionate side, and in another would refer to the roadside victims as piles of garbage in an attempt to place doubt in the public and law enforcement's eyes that he was the killer, but had instead merely only stumbled onto someone else's garbage only to have a murder unfairly pinned on him after reporting finding the roadside bodies. In yet other letters, he would write about offering a self-starter serial kit. Tay. Oh my God. <laughs> Get this. So, I mean, obviously this is an attempt at sick humor and sarcasm, but it literally makes me want to vomit. Listen to this. Okay. Quote, this is the offer you all have been dying for. The self-start serial killer kit. Now, you can be the only serial killer on your block. Learn from a professional serial killer. Get rid of the unwanted family member. Get rid of that job you always wanted by opening up the slot. Everyone will be dying to meet you. You get a full-life Julie Winningham look-alike doll with an extra-tough spring-back neck, so you will soon have the strength to squeeze the shit out of anyone. Okay, so let me... What? So you make stories and now commercials? Like, what is that? He wrote that as if it was like an ad. Can you imagine? He said, quote, I enjoy screwing with the press and prosecutors through the press. I do what has to be done to get results. Often the results that he wanted looked a lot like avoiding the death penalty, obviously. But I don't... So there's so many things to talk about with this. The whole sense of humor and sarcasm, uh, not funny, bro. No. And. Disgusting. I don't know if anyone's laughing. I don't. I feel like. I'm laughing in like misbelief. Not that it's actually funny. Right. But like, I'm like. Are you fucking kidding me? And I think too, for me, like I have a super dry sense of humor. Like anybody that knows me knows I have a super dry sense of humor. And um, just in my day to day, I see a lot of like things that most people don't see on a daily Mm -hmm. basis. So my exposure is pretty vast, I would say. And I don't think this is funny at all. Mm -hmm. And I think laughing at this in a way that like you're encouraging him is exactly what he's looking for. And so he probably thinks, ha ha, let me make something funny out of this and turn what all these horrible things I did into something that someone can laugh about. I just think that's disgusting because it's something that people can cry about. It's something that now people can laugh about. No, no, bro. Not not for me. But the thing is, is like, unfortunately, there is going to be a lot of people right. who are like that. Right. You know, and it's gross and it's disgusting. And it's... it makes me wonder if the people who are laughing have animal cruelty in their past. Uh, yeah. Because Definitely. if that's the case, look where you're going. <laughs> look in the direction hey, of where you're going. But, but OK, so like. Off note, off note of your off note, <laughs> this is exactly why there's so much different, like there's such a huge difference in a lot of people. Like we right. look at it that way, 
But there are lots of people who are mentally damaged in their brain Mm -hmm. that think this is funny, Mm -hmm. that look up to this and want to be this and Mm want to do this, but want to do it better and are going to do it better. I just need to keep working for it. You know what I mean? Like, that's the sad and disgusting truth of this world is that there are people like that. Yeah. And I I don't want to be associated with those people. Okay, so moving on, because I could talk about that all day. This guy drives me nuts. Okay, so moving on. Um, In an interview that he did, okay, so he was obviously reaching out to as many people that would listen to him and whatever. And he did an interview with some college students, okay. In this interview, he claimed, quote, when I did it, it was done, over with. I did not cherish murder. I basically looked at it as something I had to do to get it over with and keep going. I didn't intend on holding the killings hostage in my mind or in my grip for any more of a length of time than I had to, end quote. He went on to describe his life in prison, where his nickname was well known among the fellow inmates. Quote, you can imagine I walk the track out here with other convicts and they're saying, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. How would I pick a better name than that? End quote. So this, again, to me, is him glorifying his situation instead of coming to terms with reality of the fact that he's never getting off of that track, like Mm -hmm. he will forever be in a cell. And the fact that he is minimizing his deeds is just... It just goes to show a true insight of what he's thinking, even after the fact. He's yeah. been caught. He's been convicted. He's admitted to some of these things, and who knows what the heck else. But basically, my point is, is that he takes ownership for these, but then it's like he doesn't accept the punishment. Yeah. You know what I mean? He says he did it. He admits to it. He knows it. He talks about it. But then he just minimizes it. Well, I just did it and got it over with. It doesn't really matter. It does matter. It does matter. It matters to more people than you fucking think. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about this dipshit if it didn't matter. You know what I mean? And it drives me crazy that we allow him to continue in these interviews. And that's the last thing that I have to say is that he did end up getting barred from giving face-to-face interviews because of how much enjoyment he was getting. Yeah. I was going to say, this needs to stop. This attention is ridiculous. And I don't know, like... This is what he wants. Yeah, and I don't know how... just feeding into it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how far he went with, like, writings or if he's still doing that, you know, writing to the newspapers or writing... I roll in my life. Yeah. So I don't know... I don't know where he's at with that currently as far as, like, his stance on it or if he's kind of given up the fun games or maybe reality finally slapped him in the fucking face when a one of his victims was just identified but going back and talking about that oh we'll give you life in prison not the death penalty if you tell us everything they couldn't he couldn't even give them the right name yeah not one time did he give an unidentified victim's name accurately Mm -hmm. so when they say oh we think this last one out of florida is suzanne my first thought is her name is absolutely not suzanne (laughs) like i wouldn't even buy that for one minute he hasn't told the truth about a single thing He's just a pathological liar, and I I can't get behind anything he's saying because you never know what's true and what's not. And I think he created that narrative on purpose because he admitted to some things that he probably did that mm-hmm. now he wants to place doubt in people's mind. Mm-hmm. So somewhere along the line, he did admit guilt to something that he truly did do that he probably hasn't been caught for, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And he's now placed doubt in all of our minds because he's proven that he's a pathological piece of shit and so now we sit here and we're like oh what's true what's not true and we'll never know because he's never going to come clean he's going to die in prison and have never told the truth there's going to be victims that are unidentified and that's the sad truth and he doesn't give a shit his reality is just that Mm -hmm. he gets to toy with the media he gets to toy with his family he gets to toy with everybody's emotions he gets to try to make people fucking laugh about this it's not funny Mm -hmm. Like, at what point do we say, like, I don't know how long this went on where he was talking to the media, but I'm glad they barred that. Fuck that. Yeah. I'm getting heated over you here. You are. You literally just sat up and, like, looked away. <laughs> <laughs> we need to. 
<laughs> I need some air conditioning, man. I'm about to lose it. Oh my okay, gosh. let's move into the discussion questions because we are doing a lot of discussion topics. Um, and I think some of them revolve around some of our questions. So let's just put the first one in the one that we already talked about, about Melissa. It's as an adult, how would you approach life if you were in Melissa's shoes and found out your father was a serial killer? Would you write books and partake in, you know, the TV shows and meet with victims' families and advocate for other families in similar situations like she has? Or would you kind of stay back in the shadows like we typically see because they don't want that media attention? Like, which one would you do? Then moving on to the second one, um, do you think that there are other victims attributed to him? Yes, but I genuinely don't think that we'll ever really know the truth on that. I agree. Like. Because of him yeah. being all over the map. Because he being a stupid idiot. That's mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, yep. It's just too hard. I I think with how easily he does kill, for sure. I think that there's unfortunately a lot more mm-hmm. killings that he did do. Yeah. But. I can't trust anything that comes out of his mouth. Yeah. And there's certain things that comes out of his mouth that we can immediately write off as false, right? Mm -hmm. Like when he's like, oh, I just stumbled across these bodies. First of all, you didn't turn in a single body. So that doesn't make any fucking sense. And second of all, um, it was so easy. Like you just mentioned, like it was so easy for him to just kill and torture like they could just strangle them yeah animals he got upset in every single circumstance he just says i got upset over something and you know what he did over something you know what he did he got what he wanted yeah he had sex with them and exactly and for them to be for him to be like oh i got upset over something so i did it to me that's him trying probably a lie too yeah i think he's trying to assign the reason yeah i think he's trying to assign the reason as to why he did that Mm -hmm. so he's like oh she pissed me off okay no that's not how that works she charged me double even if that is the case that's not a that's not a motive for murder how big are you just toss her out of your truck right like how big are you again right the jolly green giant dude Thank throw you. him throw so her like outside you're one, yeah you don't have to kill somebody no there's so like a like, million other ways that you can handle a situation and right. this is not one of them right it's not appropriate in any means but especially in the means that he's provided oh i got upset I got about mad, something so i'm gonna strangle them and kill them and just toss them like garbage yeah you know because that's what i do i'm a fucking idiot that's yeah what I do. yeah you don't you don't you don't get to Nobody died and made you God. You don't get to make those decisions. And honestly, (laughs) the fact that he's trying to play that godly role, like that was something that his victim's family were stating in a lot of their interviews too. Like he played that role and he had no business doing that. Mm -hmm. And they're right. He didn't have any business doing that. So there's some things that I think that we can write off pretty quickly is that he's a pathological liar and that's Mm -hmm. obviously a lie. But when he's, like how he had admitted to random names, ages, and states. Like, I don't necessarily think that he killed 185 people or 160 <laughs> people or whatever number you want to read and whatever day of the week it is that he decides to admit to these stupid yeah. things. But I do believe that somewhere in there, probably a few of those are still accurate. And like you said, we'll probably never know because of the fact that he was a long haul truck driver, because of the fact that this was so long ago and, mm-hmm. you know, technology wasn't as advanced. And there were some of these victims that he had that had been written off as ODs. Yeah. You know what I mean? They OD'd, they were transient, they lived that lifestyle, they didn't even look into it. Mm -hmm. And because they didn't think that they had reason to, they thought, you know, there was no obvious signs of foul play, so they didn't even look into it. So I'm not necessarily faulting authorities for that, but it's like how many other women have been transient, OD'd, Mm -hmm. died on the side of a highway that he was actually responsible for that they just attributed to, you know, natural causes or whatever. Or ODing or something like that. I mean, it just makes you wonder, like, honestly, he's capable of so many. And I would be interested to know, like, in the United States, how many women had their bodies discovered on the side of a highway that died by strangulation and were within, like, kind of that age range, you know, of, like, the 20 to mm-hmm. 50 or, or so mm-hmm. age range. What, what are we looking at? Like, how many women in history Mm -hmm. that these cases have not been resolved or even if they have like literally i just want a number you know what i mean because i want to start i want to start deep diving (laughs) you want to start doing your own research i want it yes i want access to all these everybody all the state systems so i can research (laughs) all of these but it just makes sense i mean 
to sit, I think for us to sit here and think that he didn't kill a single other person outside of these eight would be foolish. Yeah. But it's hard to say how many or where they are, when, or I mean, <sighs> there's no way. Okay. Question number three. Do you think that he knows more about the Jane Doe victims than he is telling? Yes. This is all a part of his game. I agree. Um, I think that he does know more, but a part of me also does believe that maybe he didn't, he doesn't care enough to, to know it. You know what I'm saying? Like he, yeah, he knows it, but he doesn't care enough to know it. So he's not going to really tell it, but he also likes the idea that this is going to just play into the whole entire game that we're doing right mm-hmm. now, you know? And if he holds something back, then he has a card to play when it comes exactly. time to facing trial in another state. He can say, oh, well, if you listen to this, I can tell you this. Right. He's going to yeah. use that. I 100% agree that he does know more. And like like I said earlier, he's giving names of victims and they have no way to corroborate that. So they have to take it as like, well, I mm-hmm. guess it's right because we live in a, a country where you're innocent until proven guilty, right? So they take it at face value like, okay, her her name might be Claudia. But then that's never proven. And then when they discover the body, oh, no, it's actually not that. I mean, I don't I think that he knows more than he's leading on. And I think he's gotten away with way too much. Mm -hmm. I think he needs to be maybe like interrogated harder, longer. I don't know more. I don't have any idea. Maybe he needs to be um, (laughs) like electric chaired. (laughs) You tell a light. (laughs) I just think he needs, there, there's story. more to, yeah, <laughs> there, he's telling not enough. There's more to this story. Maybe he needs to be polygraphed. I don't know, but there's more that he is keeping in than he's letting out. For sure. Okay. So on that note though, why did he try to avoid the death penalty after attempting to commit suicide multiple times? So you want to die now you don't? I don't understand that. It's part of the game it's all a part of the game that's all it is is he winning the game i'm confused no he doesn't even know he's making up the rules because he's psychotic he's just dumb like so maybe a part of him maybe a part of him is you know regretting what he did right so Mm -hmm. he's like you know let me just let me just like end my life but then multiple personality disorder Mm. bet because one part of Seriously. him is probably saying this. And then the next part is like, no, dude, use this. Use it. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the media. It's like use Jekyll it. and Hyde, man. Yes. Except there's like. <gasps> I just got full body chills. Ew. <laughs> Except but, there's dude. probably like more than two sides to him, I would guess. There's like probably seven. like Yeah. And like to kind of feed off of that as well. At one point he comes forward like, oh, I saw the light. I saw Jesus. He told me to, to, to come yeah. Tell the truth and yeah. come clean and give everybody peace of mind and all this stuff. And then in the very, very next turn, mm-hmm. he's giving some bullshit random story to the media about killing twins with some random fucking yeah. serial killer. Yeah. And then on top of that, he's giving a commercial script for a self-starter serial killer kit. I'm sorry. Did Jesus tell you to do that too? I'm really confused oh because gosh. at this point in time, he hasn't been consistent with one single thing, which there's literally only one way to describe it, which I think you did say he's psychotic and also he's pathological. I don't even think he can keep up with his web of lies no, at this point. He cannot. Nope. Not at all. Ugh. Which is really frustrating for people like me that want to try to follow him and understand him. And I just, <laughs> you just can't. Need to it's resolve frustrating. Everything. And he's, there is nothing to resolve with he's him. So he's so frustrating. He's just constantly turning doors and going through different switchbacks and just yeah he's making up as much as he can he's following down the road in which he dumped these women's bodies it's (laughs) completely twisty windy and you can't man you know it's kind of funny too when you're talking about so how he made up that story about um being in the field and trying to bury a body and then he meets this other serial killer Uh it even in that story, he paints himself to be better than the serial killer. <laughs> and he literally puts himself as making the serial killer have a tear in his eye. Like, yeah. What? So you're like what? the superior serial oh killer? Oh my like, God. Because you took a necklace? Oh my God. Like, what a pedestal. And then it's like, 
I, I envision like a hand up against the glass, like connecting. <gasps> yeah, right? Soulmates. Like stupid. Oh my god. The fact that he has that vision of himself is probably important to him. And the fact that probably no one else on this planet sees him as that. I mean, I would hope. Yeah. <sighs> hey, bro. I hope he knows that. I hope mm. he knows that nobody looks up to him. Nobody. Nada. Okay. And, um,. I have two more questions. I know I had quite a few this week, but this case brought so many questions to mind because of the inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. So this one is actually about Laverne and John, right? So the the woman that falsely confessed and convicted her and her abusive boyfriend for Tanya's murder, which they clearly did not do, right? So with regards to that, do you think that it was appropriate to keep Laverne's conviction and revoke John's? Yes. Yeah, I mean, she was kind of the one running the show in that sense. But I don't kind of think that she should have kept that same conviction. Yeah. Maybe if it was lessened to something else. I don't know all the conviction words, but I don't think that it should have been the same as what put her there. Yeah, I agree. Um, The fact that she, like... Okay, so I'm split in half because part of me feels like I feel sorry for her that she was in an abusive relationship and did John probably deserve to go to prison? Uh, Yeah. And maybe that's for, you know, battery domestic violence Mm -hmm. or assault Mm -hmm. or whatever. I don't know what that abuse looked like. I don't know if he used, you know, deadly weapons or what his situation was. But based on her account, it sounds like he probably deserved to go to prison. Or at least spend some time locked up and get like a rude awakening. But I don't agree with how she went about it. And the reason being that had they not done that, and I mean, you never know where that investigation may have led them. And if it led them to Jesperson, then we wouldn't be here talking about this because he wouldn't have had the chance to kill so many other people. Yeah. So the fact that they intervened with the investigation of tanya is really frustrating because i mean you can't go back in time but you almost wish you could you Mm -hmm. know um so i think that the charge that you're looking for is something along the lines of maybe like contempt of court or something like that yeah but and like you know perjury if she perjured herself in trial or something i don't know um it sounds like they took a plea deal so they didn't go to trial so Whatever charge you can actually get her for, I don't agree that she should have been convicted of and kept the charge of murder, considering she didn't actually murder Didn't, anybody. Yeah, yeah. But I do believe that she should have kept a criminal record because of that so, intervention. Yeah, I agree. Okay, and my last one, I'm just I'm gonna let you guess. What do you think it is? Nature versus nurture. Yes. Yeah, so what is it? Nature. Yep. Because your dad is crazy and your grandpa crazy. And then that great uncle Charlie, he crazy too. Yep. So yeah, that's. And you're going to sit here and try and convince me. (laughs) Which it's kind of crazy though. Like if you think about genetics, you know how you can have siblings who same mom, same dad, they don't look anything alike. Right. Mm -hmm. He had four other siblings and he's the only one that came out. I mean, he got like the freaking grunt of it all. Yeah. He was overly and severely scolded. You know, you could tell that he was the one that was less loved. He was definitely up. like the runt of the family, which is weird because he was like right in the middle. Yeah, because he know? fell in the middle. But but even yeah. when he was mentioning about when they had to pay rent. Right. Why was he the one that always that was paying rent mm-hmm. more than mm-hmm. his other siblings? Right. Like you kind of see that typically if it was like the firstborn or like the lastborn, mm-hmm. but like right in the middle. It's kind of weird. But. This is not the first time, I mean, it's the first time on our show, but this is not the first time that we, in our research over the years, Mm -hmm. have seen cases where you have a family that has many, many kids and they neglect one of them. Yeah. And they turn, and they turn their siblings against that person. And then like that one Mm -hmm. child that's being neglected and it's like promoted that it's okay to treat treat this one person that way and i don't know that his siblings were necessarily doing that i know he got picked on and that kind of stuff but i mean regardless of how his siblings treated him the fact that his parents 
allowed that or advocated for that, you know, with like Mm -hmm. the electric shock and stuff like that. That's not, to me, whether it's 12 volts or 220 volts, that's not an appropriate punishment. No, definitely not. And I'm happy that his children didn't end up coming out with any issues. And so, you know, I understand that that could be an argument against the nature side of things. And and that I do believe that there is an argument for nurture for sure on this one, yeah. but I have to go with nature. I feel like, yeah, it. I feel like there could go both ways, but I think majority is nature. Right. I agree. And then it doesn't help that it was nurtured on too. So I think he got worst, the worst, the worst pick. Yeah. His upbringing wasn't great. <laughs> I mean, they were talking about him living in a trailer park, which I don't think that necessarily equates to a bad childhood, but with his father promoting that he is killing animals and then later bragging about it and just like with that type of upbringing it's almost like they wanted him to come out a serial killer like what can we do to ruin this child's life and make it so that he is a menace to society oh and that's what they did we'll do that times 10 right (laughs) we'll give him a bb gun we'll beat him until he's black and blue Yeah. yeah i just it's hard because I most certainly don't want to make it seem that we should feel sorry for him because other people have had these kinds of treatings with their families and do not grow up to be serial killers. Mm-hmm. So I most certainly don't want you to feel sorry for him in any capacity because at the end of the day, he's the one who still made murdered people. Mm-hmm. And I think knowing what we know now about him having sex with them and then murdering them if he wasn't directly paying them, or even if he was, I wonder what those victims would say if you could bring them back. I wonder what they would say about whether that was rape or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would wonder if they would have told you, yes, we consented to that or not. Because he agrees and admits to having sex with them. Mm -hmm. He never necessarily says that he sexually assaults them, but I wonder what the victims would see that as. You know what I mean? Right. Well, he might not ever see or say that it was rape mm-hmm. because he also looks at them as, you know, mm-hmm. pieces of work. So it, in, garbage. In, his, in his head, right. if I'm paying for it, it can't be rape. Right. If you're going to accept my money, it's not rape. Right. And that's the disgusting truth with that. But, Absolutely. <sighs> this man wants to make me vomit. So I'm going to end this episode before... <laughs> We just keep going. Before I just keep going. Um, over the course of the last few weeks of us doing this case, I have just built up a severe anger towards this man. And there's been a lot of cases that we've covered so far. But, man, this is like one of my top least favorites because he's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. I can't understand him. There's mm-hmm. no rhyme or reason. And you, you're left to just legitimately speculate. And there's no reason for that. He's still yeah. alive. He can still come clean. He can still do the right thing. He can still make a change. He can still apologize to the victims. He can still, and their families, he can still do all the right things. And he's choosing not to do that. Yeah. And to me, that's just the worst. I'm glad that his daughter was able to say goodbye and that she's not mm-hmm. bringing his grandkids and her kids around him because yeah. honestly, he doesn't deserve that. He doesn't deserve them. They're too good for him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. I will review really quickly what each of our discussion questions were this week. So number one, as an adult, how would you approach life if you were in Melissa's shoes and found out your father was a serial killer? Number two, do you think there are other victims attributed to him? Number three, do you think he knows more about the Jane Doe victims than he is telling? Number four, Why did he try to avoid the death penalty after attempting to commit suicide multiple times? Number five, was it appropriate to keep Laverne's conviction and revoke John's? And number six, is this nature or nurture? So jump to our Facebook addicts, and that is where you will find each of these discussion questions listed just under our Amazon link and will be labeled discussion questions for episode 16. If you're not already following us on Facebook, search Crime Addicts Podcast, like, follow, share, all the good stuff, and comment on our post about this week's case because we truly are interested to hear what you guys have to say on this one. We will also post a picture of him on there so that you guys have a visual of who it was that we spoke about today. 
And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on the baby Huey looking motherfucker. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.